All right, uh, here we go. Week four in our Mosaic sermon series. We're talking about race and the church in America. Now, here's what I've been reminded of as I've been having really some fantastic conversations over email, over text, uh, after the worship services. I've been reminded of something. I, I heard this phrase somewhere. I, I can't for the life of me remember where. I did a little Googling. It didn't give me the answer, so I gave up because that's what you do when a little Googling doesn't give you the answer, right? But here's the phrase I've heard when you talk about um, topics that are weighty and complicated, and particularly topics associated with some um, different and even divisive points of view. When we talk about race, when the word race comes up, when all the um, associated uh, historical, political, uh, uh, social uh, questions around it, when you talk about these things, we all have the same vocabulary, right? We're speaking English. We speak with each other. We use the same words. But it seems like often we're referring to different dictionaries in the middle of these conversations. We can say things like the history of racism in America, and that might bring to mind certain events or certain implications, but our definition of what that history is, what impact it's had, whether there are ongoing consequences, our dictionary definitions differ quite significantly. And I said this at the beginning, but I'm going to start the last sermon, this last sermon by just acknowledging this reality. Um, we're going to look at another scripture today, and we're going to ask ourselves, as God's people, how do we faithfully conduct ourselves in this world that we live in? But what I want to acknowledge is there's a whole process of work that we all have to do, right? We're trying to understand scripture. We're trying to understand individual passages of scripture. We're trying to let that inform a whole vision of who God's calling us to be. And then we're trying to understand our world, the world we live in, the, the challenges, the brokenness of sin that we see. And we're trying to understand what are the challenges. And, and based on that, we're trying to say, how do, we, how do we respond? How do we respond as individuals? How do we respond as a church? How do we respond with our political voice or political action? And all of these things, in fact, interconnect with one another. And we might have small differences of opinion all along the line, but suffice it to say, that's a lot of different topics and questions and ideas that intersect with one another when we talk about race in the church in America. And let's just say something. Um, I have not even remotely uh, adequately addressed this topic in four short weeks, or I and the other preachers, um, because the level of greater depth we could go in any one of those areas is, is substantial. Even after the service today, I had a really fantastic conversation with somebody from the first service about just some of these interconnections between theology and politics and what we see in the world around us. Um, so acknowledging the challenge, acknowledging, heck, even more um, topics than, than what I've said or what we could say, um, and how complicated they are, I'm just going to remind us, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to say that our goal is not to align ourselves with any party, with any policy, with any human institution of any sort, but our goal is to align ourselves with Christ and his kingdom. To commit ourselves with the life that God is calling us to lead 
And with that as the first and only commitment, standing way above everything else, to figure out how do we live in this world personally, culturally, politically. And we may not, we may still have disagreement, even if our commitment to God and his word is one and the same, we may still have disagreement, but we must constantly remind ourselves to come back to that first commitment of Christ followers. Amen? Anybody with me on that? Are we good? Okay. Look at we agree. All right, let's pray. Uh, <laughs> all right, quick reminder of where we've been. Um, we started looking at the story of Jesus when he had to go through Samaria. Jesus and his conversation with the Samaritan woman. We acknowledged that the landing point of Scripture is an image of God's people gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation in unity together. And what I tried to say in that first week is this. Diversity is its own kingdom value. Anytime we look at the beautiful diversity of God's creation and we're not experiencing living in the midst of that diversity, we're missing out on something. And that's particularly convicting for people like us who live in a largely monocultural part of the world in the city. We are missing out on part of God's design for his kingdom when we don't have an experience with diversity. The way it said in the text is Jesus was traveling and it said he had to go through Samaria, but he didn't actually have to. There were other roads. Rather, he chose to intentionally cross cultural boundaries in order to pursue diversity for its own sake, along with other benefits as well. Then the second week, um, I was out with COVID. I've still got this, this slight little COVID cough thing that just, it's not bad. It's not terrible, but it's just always there. It's just like stays in your throat. And Craig Blomberg preached, and I appreciated that. And then as he said, he fled the country. He is, he's over in Great Britain now. So whether you liked or didn't like what he said, he's out. Um, but Craig talked specifically about how we use our finances and what God's people are called to when we see the inequality that we see in the world around us. And it's impossible to talk about race and the church in America without acknowledging the inequality we see. And here was Craig's challenge to us. When the church sees inequality, it responds with generosity. And particularly, he, he challenged us to consider the fact that we are by and large very wealthy people by world standards who live in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, if not, not only you know, most wealth now, but possibly more wealth than the world's ever known before. And yet we still have, I believe, I looked up the 2020 statistics, 11.4% of Americans are living below the poverty line by the most re recent Census Bureau. And here was Craig's challenge to the church. Whenever there are people who have too little, that means, according to Scripture, that some people are keeping too much. And then last week, uh, Rebecca took us on a little tour through the book of Acts, the life of the early church, and the way that God's people, just like Jesus, often crossed cultural boundaries and had to figure out how to be God's people together. And Rebecca's observation was this. It's, it was true thousands of years ago. It's true still today. Oftentimes, if you're different from the majority, it is more difficult for you because you are different. 
And we know that that's true even in the church in America where sometimes even the ability to feel comfortable in a place of worship can feel difficult if you're different from the majority of people. And here was Rebecca's powerful closing challenge to the church. Let us not make different difficult. God designed humanity with difference to express the beauty of him, the creator. And so let us not make different difficult. Today, we're going to wrap this up by looking at um, a story that Jesus told that may be one of the most famous stories he told. It's called The Parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, If you want to go there, we're in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. The words will be on a screen in a bit. Um, But I want to give a little bit of context, and I want to give a couple definitions before we read the story. Because as we know, when you read something written thousands of years ago in a different language... It's easy to miss, in our modern reading, some of the impact that a first audience would have had. So first of all, Jesus tells this story in a particular context. He's having a conversation with a lawyer or an expert in the law. And this expert in the law is a Jewish man who has been uh, to lots and lots of schooling and would have been highly respected in that society at that time as somebody that people looked up to as a source of authority or moral or religious teaching. Jesus is having a conversation with a respected figure in Jewish society. And while he's having that conversation, probably a decent-sized crowd of people are listening. So this is an educational moment between Jesus and this man. And then Jesus tells the story as an answer to a question that the man asks. And in this story, we meet a few people. First, we meet a priest. And this would likely have been the priest at the temple in Jerusalem, which again would have been one of the highest status positions in Jewish religious and social life. So Jesus calls to attention a man of great status. The next character we meet is a Levite. Now, the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, was the tribe from which the priests came. And so the Levites were also people of high importance. They might have been a small step down in importance. Maybe the priest would be more important. But the point is it's another person of high importance. And probably the more, most important fact is that the third person we meet is a giant step down in terms of an ancient Jewish assessment of importance in society. The next person we meet is a Samaritan. And as we read the very first week in this series, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The Samaritans were considered repulsive and offensive. Their life, for many historical reasons, was considered an affront to the way of God. So we go from highly respected people to a sudden and jarring step way down to somebody whose presence in the story would have been offensive. Last note, again, just to kind of help us as we hear the words of Jesus um, get the story to mind. There's another um, vocabulary word. The quiz will be on the back table on the way out. I expect you to fill it up, bring it back next week. Um, The vocabulary word is we read about the denarii, and we hear that a man left two denarii with an innkeeper. Now, that is considered uh, 
the average wage of a day laborer in ancient Israel. So, the, so one denarii is one day's wages. You can do all sorts of interesting historical economic calculations to figure out what that would have been worth in modern days. But I invite you to consider for just a second, what might your one day's wages be? And in case you're not a math whiz, I did a couple calculations. Uh, In the city of Littleton, in 2019, the median income for a household was $76,000. Now, if you work five days a week, how many weeks are in there? 52 weeks a year. um, That comes out to about $300 for each day that you work if your household income is $76,000. Now, I also happen to notice that in the city of Littleton, over a quarter of people make over $200,000 a year. So if $200,000 is your annual household income, then one day's wages would be about $750, making two denarii about $1,500. So there we go. Um, Some of the characters we're going to meet, some of the vocab, Let's listen now to the story of Jesus' conversation with the expert in the law. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he saw, or sorry, when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. I've got three questions that I want to explore together today about this text. So first of all, um, 
The story starts with an expert in the law asking Jesus about how to get eternal life, which in that context would not mean what modern American evangelicals are sometimes prone to think, meaning like life after we die. It would be life as the way God intended it to be lived. Life now the way God intended it to live. God in the future. It's the fulfillment of God's intention for life. And Jesus' response is, the way you get eternal life, the way you live by God's design, is by loving God and loving neighbor. So first question I want to ask, there's even a great song to punctuate the question, what is love? Hopefully that song gets stuck in your head for the rest of the day. See, because we always run a risk, right? In modern American culture, not long after Valentine's Day, when we hear the word love, we can think about like, cards with hearts on them, or chocolates, or roses, or dinners at the melting pot, or whatever it is, and that might all be fine, but it turns out the question that Jesus asked this lawyer, and his answer, is actually a question that Jesus himself was asked earlier, and Jesus's answer gives one extra little line that the expert in the law here didn't say. I want to read Jesus' answer to the same question of what's the greatest commandment. Here's uh, the story from Matthew chapter 22. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, this will sound familiar, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Wait a minute, Jesus, wait a minute. You're saying that if I love God and I love neighbor, as Jesus said in other places, that will fulfill or complete or honor all of the law and the prophets? All of it? Have you read the law and the prophets, Jesus? Because they talk about a lot of different things. Let me give you some examples. Leviticus 19, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. We use electronic direct deposit to pay our wages around here, so I think we're good. Okay, next one, Leviticus 14. The person with a disease who came to be cleansed must wash their clothes, shave off all their hair, and bathed with water. Then they will be ceremonially clean. After this, they may come into the camp, but they must stay outside their tent for seven days. First example of quarantining to prevent transmission of communicable diseases right there in Leviticus. Or then there's the prophet, Isaiah 58. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, and break every yoke. One more from Deuteronomy. Um, This one's very relevant. Think about your olive trees. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. Here's the point. When Jesus, an expert in the law, and his conversation partner, an expert in the law, talk about love, what they had in mind were things like fair wages, things like 
providing for those who are in need. Things like fighting on behalf of those who have the least in society. So even though the topic is eternal life and love, it's not hard to understand how when we look at our world today and we see inequality, and particularly the statistics that demonstrate how when you consider the difference among people from different racial backgrounds, there is great inequality in our worlds. In our world, that is of great importance to the story that Jesus tells today. Which brings us to two questions about the story of the Good Samaritan. I think we acknowledge when we see the priest and the Levite and the difference between those two characters and the Samaritan, we can easily acknowledge the, the weightiness of how Jesus chose to tell that story and the way it would have cut to the heart of the first audience, a primarily Jewish audience. But there's something interesting to note. The priest is named. We know things about him. The Levite is named. We know things about him. The Samaritan is named. We know things about him. But the person who was robbed and beaten, we get no defining information about. So here's my second question. Who is this man? Who is he? Why is it that everybody else is named, everybody else has context, everybody else has interesting information, and we know nothing about the man? Here's the, um, there's a lot of ways to go, but, but maybe the answer to this question comes in a really interesting, somewhat, uh, um, I don't know if it's a sidetrack, but kind of historical, ge- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Geographical. Geographical is the word. Geographical part. Um, the path that Jesus refers to is a path you can still walk down today. And in fact, even today, there are parts on the path where it's very narrow and there are steep sides and little side slot canyons that make it very easy for robbers to hide in and come out and attack and rob people. It is, in fact, considered in some parts dangerous still today. If I'm walking down a narrow path that at sections is like a canyon with steep walls, and I pass by on the other side, where am I going? This is not some divided highway and there's like an overpass to the sidewalk on the far side. The somewhat situational and sad humor would be the priest and the Levite might not have passed on the other side. They might literally have stepped over the body of this beaten man because there was no other side to the small path they were walking on. And I think that's the idea behind this man being unnamed. The point is not who the man is, the point is that these people could help, but they didn't. Instead, they may literally have stepped over his half-dead body. When the weight of that hits in, uh, you know, sinks in, there's a, there's a, a broader biblical concept um, that I think this story reinforces. You can find it in all sorts of places. You can find it in Prophets like Isaiah and the text we just read this morning, you can find it in uh, texts like how Jesus leaves the 99 to go find the one. Um, It's a biblical theme often referred to as God's special concern for the poor. The point of the unnamed man is not that we know exactly who he is or what uh, what his life circumstances, but the point is that he was hurt and in need. 
And scripture testifies in many different ways that God has a particular concern for the people who are most in need in our world. When we see hurt, when we see inequality, when we see need, and we have the ability to do something about it, God is concerned that we do something about it. Now, when we see this phrase, God's special concern for the poor, there's a pretty common response. And the response is, hold on, Carl, hold on. You've said from this pulpit, I've read the Bible, God created all people, and he created all people in his image, so God loves everybody equally, right? Why would he have a special concern for some people? Isn't that God treating his people unequally? Isn't that, isn't that unfair on God's part? It's a good question. I'll answer it with a couple illustrations. Um, I had two neighbors at one point. Uh, they were both firefighters. Denver firefighters, great guys, hilarious guys. They loved to play pranks on one another all the time. Watching adult men play pranks on one another is really hilarious, especially when you're the neighbor and they don't pull pranks on you, you just get to watch. Fantastic. But I would, in my friendship with these two guys, I would get to hear some pretty, um, pretty incredible stories of these two men literally walking into life and death circumstances, putting their life on the line, risking their life in order to save other people. But you know what I learned about firefighters? Um, they pretty much never risk their lives on behalf of somebody whose house is fine and they're sleeping securely and safely at night. They only risk their lives for people whose house is on fire. They have a special concern for people whose house is on fire. And that is appropriate. Or uh, the other example, this one uh, uh, somewhat personal, ER doctors, I have this memory my dad uh, spent his profession, as his career as a uh, physician, and up in northern Minnesota, he had to do a little bit of everything, a little bit of ER, a little bit of in the clinic, a little bit of uh, OR, whatever it is. Um, and one day he was uh, on a shift at the, in the emergency room, and I remember he came home early, and I just remember being struck by that, because I had, in my brain as a kid, I had the knowledge, when dad's in the ER... You know, we're not going to see him till late in the evening. But this day, he came home early. And I said, Dad, why'd you, why are you home already? I thought you were in the ER. And he said, well, somebody came in, and their heart wasn't beating when they came in. And I resuscitated them. And that was pretty significant, so I thought I'd take the rest of the day off. <laughs> I talked to my dad a fair bit about what that's like to be in that moment, and, and here's the second illustration similar to firefighters. That same day, there might have been somebody else in the ER with a broken arm, and I bet my dad had concern for the man with a broken arm, but you know who he had a special concern for? The man whose heart wasn't beating. So why is it significant that the man who was robbed was not named? It's significant because the story is showing us that God has a special concern for anyone who is hurting, and especially those who are hurting most. Last, uh, and the part that, that I, if I'm honest, um, as I spent quite a bit of time, um, you know, we knew we were going to preach on this text, man, probably, probably a couple months ago. Uh, so as I've been resonating on it, there's one character that, um, for many reasons, captured my attention most. So here, here's our third last question for the morning. Who is, who's this lawyer? Um, the thing about the lawyer is he really gets a bad rap. I mean, he really 
he is not cast in a positive light in this story. Um, You see it in kind of two places. The first place is after Jesus tells his parable, um, and he asks the lawyer, so which one of these three guys was the neighbor, right? Which one of these three guys was the good guy, did the right thing? And the lawyer literally can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He just says, you can almost feel the gritted teeth, the one who had mercy on him. Duh. And then the other bit of information we get about the lawyer, um, the expert in the law, is that he's having a conversation with Jesus, a well-known Jewish rabbi, and it would be appropriate for an expert in the law and a rabbi to have this type of public classroom conversation. It would be appropriate for an expert in the law to pursue their profession of education for the general public and teaching people how to follow God's law. That would be a good and right thing. Even to challenge the rabbi would be a good and right thing. But the lawyer's not doing this in order to gain further understanding. He's not doing this in order to educate God's people. He's doing this because he was trying to justify himself. One of the, one of the impulses for this sermon series was just a realization that all of us, maybe presently ongoing, but at least some point in our life, all of us have had experiences of being in conversation with people. Maybe it's a brother or a brother-in-law or an aunt or an uncle. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a colleague. But being in conversation with people about the topic of race in America, or maybe particularly race in the church in America. And many, if not all of us, have had, com- have had experiences where you're in that conversation, and there's a difference of opinion. And suddenly, you'll know the moment when I say it, but it's like you're talking, and then you or the other person says something, and suddenly your hackles go up. You don't have hackles. But if you did, it would be very convenient because you'd know when the conversation turned the wrong way. If I'm honest, when I think about the places that I have those conversations, and just to kind of say, I actually have uh, two people in my life right now that I'm trying to intentionally pursue conversation about uh, race and the role of the church, um, race and the current events and the appropriate response of government or legislation. Um, I'm I'm trying to do this myself. Um, Here's what I notice. When I'm in that conversation and that moment happens where my heart kind of goes, whew, and suddenly it, it, it's, on, it, it, it's at risk of falling apart as a productive conversation and instead turning into something else, um, I find myself asking, in that moment when the, when the temperature raises and the tension gets high, uh, what's my motivation? What's my motivation now in this interaction? Is love my motivation? Is generosity my posture? Is diversity the value that I'm pursuing? In this interaction, what am I really trying to accomplish? Whenever it comes to evaluating our inner motivations, which is a lifelong work and always worthwhile, there's a a spiritual practice that the church has used many times, a way to make Scripture a form of prayer that I want to suggest to you. Um, Here's the idea, uh, and I really encourage you to, to... Try it, maybe this afternoon, at least sometime this week. Take this story, 
the story of Jesus' conversation with the lawyer. Read slowly through it, and as you're reading, try your best to let the scene come alive in your imagination. See if you can see the sights, smell the smells, picture the different characters, envision the road. Actually, if you Google it, you can find pictures of this path. Um, You know, there's still people who walk it this day. And as the story comes alive in your mind's eye, locate yourself in the story. Where are you standing? Are you in the audience? Are you a bystander? Are you one of the named characters? Maybe the priest? Maybe the Levite? (laughs) Clearly, I'm the Samaritan, obviously. That's where I show up in the story, right? That's what we're inclined to think. Thank you for laughing. That would have been awkward if you hadn't laughed. (laughs) As I was kind of doing that practice myself, I was reminded of a conversation I had um, not long after the George Floyd murder in Minneapolis, and I shared before, my mom and sister live less than a mile from um, where it actually happened. Uh, But I remember a conversation I had with Maurice Cox, a covenant pastor up in Louisville, um, black man, and I had had a conversation, I played a video, and I just said, Maurice, what would you say to me, your colleague, and what would you say to our church? And one of the things Maurice said that has stood with me is he said, Carl, I would just want to say that Church, some of your brothers and sisters are hurting. In a sense, Maurice was saying, when he reads that story, or for many uh, minorities in our country today, um, when they read the story, they would identify themselves as the wounded man, laying there on the road half dead, wondering to see if somebody's going to stop and help, or if somebody's just going to step over them. And then furthermore, I think to myself, okay, so where would I locate myself in the story? And I I think Jesus might want us to consider this. What if, in this story, I'm the lawyer? What if my motivation far too often is to justify myself, prove myself right? And if I'm willing to consider that that might be true in my heart, then here's the invitation of Christ. Resist that motivation to just, justify yourself. It feels good. It's a natural sinful desire in our hearts. Resist that and instead hear this call. Our motivation, like the Samaritan, is to love God and neighbor even at great personal expense. Which brings us, as always, to the question of what's your move going to be? couple suggestions. One, when you look at the brokenness in our world, particularly all the discussion, division, conversation around race and, and the church and the society in America today, we have to ask ourselves, are we stopping to help or are we just walking by? And we may still disagree on the best way to stop and help, but may we never lose sight of the fact that God's call is that we would never step over a half-dead body when we could help that we would never just walk by. Second, please do consider reading this story, imagining it, and trying to envision yourself in the scene. It's a powerful way for Scripture to become prayer. And when you do, consider what would it be like to experience the story from the perspective of the wounded man. Consider what you learn about your heart if you experience this whole interaction 
from the perspective of putting yourself in the place of the lawyer and asking, as I look at these big challenges, as I look at whatever interpersonal conflict I have, as I look at what's happening nationally, can I seriously ask myself, am I trying to justify myself? Last but not least, I want to share three um, really practical things that we could do. Uh, First of all, we've had a couple events in the past number of months that we've branded many nations events. We've got other covenant churches here in the Denver area, uh, a Korean covenant church, uh, a Kenyan, uh, African-American covenant church, and a Latino covenant church. And we've said, we want to cross cultural boundaries and pursue uh, social gatherings together, worship gatherings together. We hope and pray eventually shared ministry together. Next time that we host a Many Nations event, we don't have the next one on the calendar yet, but when we do, consider the words of Jesus. He had to go to Samaria, and maybe you'll say to yourself, yes, I have to go to this, event, to this event because diversity is its own value. Let's be the church together. Second, um, we've mentioned this a bunch of times, uh, and, and we've not quite tried to really get a group, but I just want to say it again. The denomination has an awesome uh, regular event called the Sankofa Journey. Uh, they get a group of people, put them on a bus together, and they intentionally get people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, and they travel to some key historical sites in the American civil rights movement and the history of civil rights in our country. And they learn some history, and they process it with people who look different than, than them so that we might be people who learn to see the world, not just through our own eyes, but through other people's eyes. Um, I'm just going to say it again, and there's one coming up in March that if you want to look for, um, we can get you connected, but um, there will be more in the future. And I'm putting all this in an email uh, tomorrow as well, just so you know. Third, uh, our longtime ministry partner, North Littleton Promise, a ministry that was born out of this church, is starting a study on Thursday called Welcoming the Stranger. Um, Thursday nights, 6.30 to 8 p.m., the executive director of North Littleton Promise, Maureen Shannon, is going to be hosting it. Um, throughout Scripture is a theme of caring for, welcoming, giving attention to the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, the stranger who is living among us. Uh, if you want to go deeper in biblical study, I'd encourage you to consider that. I'm going to have the worship team come back up, and would you guys pray with me? God, again, sometimes when we look at the challenge and the complexity of this world we live in. We see the beauty of your diverse creation and, and the struggle to realize it uh, in our world. We just say, what God shall we do? Uh, even as we pursue personally and as a congregation, um, as we pursue faithful next steps, God, would one thing be secure? That our greatest desire is to love God and love neighbor, even at great personal expense, just like you, God, loved us. Not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, but you loved us at great personal expense. We pray this in your name. Amen.